Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 19, verses 23 through 28. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was a hungered? he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Burkett Notes Observe here, 1. The poverty, the low estate and condition of Christ's own disciples in this world. They wanted bread and were forced to pluck the ears of corn to satisfy their hunger. God may and sometimes doth suffer his dearest children to fall into straits, to taste of want for the trial of their faith and dependence upon his power and providence. Observe, too, how the Pharisees, who accompanied our Savior only with a design to cavil at and quarrel with everything that either he or his disciples did, blame this action of the disciples, namely the plucking of the ears of corn on the Sabbath day. Yet note one, it was not any theft which the disciples were charged with, for to take in our necessity so much of our neighbor's goods as we may reasonably suppose that, if he were present and knew our circumstances, he would give us, is no theft but it is the servile labor on the Sabbath, the gathering of the ears of corn, which the Pharisees scruple. Whence observe how zealous hypocrites are for the lesser things of the law, whilst they neglect the greater, and are superstitiously addicted to the outward ceremonies, placing all holiness in the observation of them, neglecting moral duties. Observe farther, three, how our Savior defends the action of his disciples in gathering the ears of corn in their necessity, by the practice and example of David. Necessity freed him from fault and blame in eating the consecrated bread, which none but the priests might lawfully eat. For in cases of necessity, a ceremonial precept must give way to a moral duty. Works of mercy and necessity for preserving our lives and for the better fitting of us for Sabbath service are certainly lawful for the Sabbath day. Observe 4. A double argument which our Savior uses to prove that the Sabbath's observation may be dispensed with in a case of absolute necessity. 1. Drawn from the end of the Sabbath's institution. The Sabbath was made for man, that is, instituted of God for the good and benefit of mankind, both respect to their souls and their bodies. The outward observing and keeping of the Sabbath is subordinate to the good of man, and therefore the good of man is to be preferred before the outward keeping of the Sabbath. 2. Argument is drawn from the authority which Christ, the institutor of the Sabbath, has over it. The Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. That is, he has authority and power, both as God and as mediator, to institute and appoint a Sabbath, to alter and change the Sabbath, to dispense with the breach of it upon a just and great occasion, and consequently acts of mercy, which tend to fit us for works of piety, not only may, but ought to be done upon the Sabbath day which was the proposition which our Savior undertook to prove. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And he entered again into the synagogue, 
and there was a man there which had a withered hand, and they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. Burkett notes, The former part of this chapter reports to us a miraculous cure wrought by Christ upon a man who had a withered hand. The place where he wrought it was the synagogue. The time when was the Sabbath day. The manner how was by speaking a word. The person before whom were the envious and malicious Pharisees. These men were always cavailing at our Savior's doctrine and slandering his miracles. Yet our Savior goes on with his work before their faces without either interruption or discouragement. Learn hence that the unjust censures and malicious cavails of wicked men against us for well-doing must not discourage us from doing our duty, either towards God or towards our neighbor. Though the Pharisee watched our Savior, and when their envy and malice could find no occasion for quarrel, they could invent and make one, yet such was our Lord's courage and resolution that he bids the man which had the withered hand stand forth to show that he was resolved to heal him, notwithstanding their malicious purpose to accuse him for it as a breaker of the Sabbath. Opposition met with in doing our duty must not discourage us from doing good if we will follow the example of our blessed Redeemer. Verse 5. And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored whole as the other. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the Pharisee's sinful and graceless disposition, and that was hardness of heart. The heart of man is naturally hard, and full of obstinacy and enmity against Christ, but there is an acquired hardness, which continuance in sin occasions. The Pharisees labored under both. Observe, too, a double affection which the hardness of the heart found in the Pharisees did stir up in Christ namely, anger and indignation, grief and commiseration. He was grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Learn hence, one, that human passions are not sinful, and that the Christian religion doth not destroy natural affections. Two, that anger at sin, either in ourselves or other, if kept within its due bounds, is not only lawful, but commendable. This passion of anger was found in him in whom was no sin. Three, that our anger against sin ought to be accompanied with grief and compassion towards sinners. We should pour out our tears of compassion when men pour forth their abominations. For that of all sins, hardness of heart and unbelief are most grievous and offensive, most displeasing and provoking to Jesus Christ. He looked about with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Observe 3. The sudden and instantaneous cure which our Savior wrought upon the man that had the withered hand. Our Savior did not touch him, but only said to him, Stretch forth thy hand, and it was presently cured. Learn hence that Christ's having absolute power over all bodily diseases and infirmities, to cure them miraculously without means, only by a word speaking, is one argument that proves him to be truly and really God. Verses 6 through 12. And the Pharisee went forth, and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. 
when they heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, what dismal effects this famous miracle of Christ had upon the Pharisee and Herodians. Instead of being convinced by it, they conspire against him for it. These Herodians and Pharisees were of different opinions, enemies to one another, yet they joined together in seeking the death of Christ. The Pharisees were against paying tribute to Caesar, looking upon themselves as a free people and accounting the Roman emperor a usurper. The Herodians were for it. Herod, being made by the Roman emperor king of the Jews, was zealous for having the Jews pay tribute to Caesar. And such of the Jews sided with him, particularly his courtiers and favorites, were styled Herodians. But both Pharisee and Herodians take counsel against Christ. Learn thence that unity and consent is of itself alone, far from being a mark and note of the true church. Unity in the faith and doctrine of Christ, and in the profession and practice of the true religion, is a note indeed of the true church. But unity in opposing Christ, his person, his doctrine, his people, is so far from being a mark of the true church that it is the badge of the anti-Christian synagogue. Observe, too, the prudent means which our Savior uses to preserve himself from the rage of the Pharisees. He withdraws himself from them. Christ's example teaches his ministers their duty in a time of danger to fly from persecution and to endeavor to preserve their lives, unless when their sufferings are like to do more good than their lives. Observe 3. The great zeal and forwardness of the people in flocking after our Savior's ministry. People come now at first from all places and countries, from Judea, from Idumea, from beyond Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon, to hear his doctrine and see his miracles. The people came from all parts when our Savior first began to preach. His ministers find it thus. At their first coming amongst a people, their labors are most acceptable, and they do most good. Our people's affections are then warmest, and perhaps our own, too. Observe 4. What sort of people they were which attended thus zealously upon our Savior's ministry. They were the common and ordinary people. The poor received the gospel. Whilst the Pharisees and other men of most account, the mighty, the noble, and the wise men after the flesh, despised our Savior's person, slighted his ministry, and sought his life. The ordinary and meanest sort of people have ever been more zealous and forward in embracing the gospel than ever the great and the rich and the honorable part of the world have been. It is a sad but a certain truth. Heaven is the place where few, comparatively, of the great men of the world are like to come. Their temptations are many, their lusts are strong, and their great estates, through their own abuse, become fuel to their lusts. Observe 5. The behavior of these unclean spirits, the devils, towards our Savior, and our Savior's carriage towards them. They fall down at the very sight of him. They cry out and confess him to be the Son of God. But he sharply rebukes them and charges them that they should not make him known. Not that our Savior would have the knowledge of his person suppressed, but because the devils were not fit persons to preach Jesus Christ. A truth out of the mouth of the father of lies is enough to render truth itself suspected. Besides, 
the time appointed for the full and clear manifestation of the Godhead of Christ was not yet come. This was not to be done till after his resurrection. The divine nature was to be hid under the veil of Christ's flesh during a state of humiliation and debasement. Verses 13 through 19. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained the twelve, that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and have the power to heal sickness, and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Bonerges, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James the son of Alphas, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Burkett notes, As the Jewish church arose from twelve patriarchs, so the Christian church became planted by twelve apostles. The person commissioning them was Christ. None may undertake the work and calling of the ministry, but those whom Christ appoints and calls. The persons commissioned were disciples before they were apostles to teach us that Christ will have such as preach the gospel to be disciples before they are ministers, trained up in the faith and doctrine of the gospel before they undertake a public charge. Observe farther the holy preparative which our Savior uses in order to this election of his apostles. He goeth up into the mountain to pray upon that great occasion. So says St. Luke, chapter 6, 12, He went up into a mountain to pray and spent the night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples, and of them he chose twelve. In this prayer, no doubt, he pleaded with his father to furnish all those that were to be sent forth by him with all ministerial gifts and graces. Learn thence that as prayer is a necessary preparative to all duties, so more especially before the public election and ordination of the ministers of the church. Solemn prayer is to be used by such as are to ordain and choose them. Our Lord's practice is to be a standing rule herein to all church officers. Observe again, though Christ called his apostles now, yet he did not send them forth now. He ordained twelve that they should be with him, that is, that they might converse with him and be eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of his life, doctrine, and miracles. And having been thus with Christ and fitted and prepared for him for their work, afterwards they went forth. Thence learn that such as are to take upon them the office of the ministry ought first to be fitted and prepared for it, then solemnly called to it, before they enterprise and undertake the execution of it. If the apostles here, who were called and qualified extraordinarily, were to spend some time with Christ to receive direction and instruction from him before they went forth to preach, how much more needful is it for such as are ordinarily called to be well fitted and furnished for the ministerial service before they undertake it. Observe next how the several names of the apostles are here registered and recorded. God will honor those that honor him and are the special instruments of his glory. Of these apostles, Peter is named first and Judas last. Peter is named first because probably elder than the rest or because for order's sake he might speak before the rest. From whence may be inferred a primacy but no supremacy a priority of order, not a superiority of degree. As the foreman of a grand jury has a precedency, but no preeminency, he is first in order before the rest, but he has no authority or power over the rest. Judas is named last, with a brand of infamy upon him, 
that he was a traitor, the person that betrayed his Lord and Master. Once learn that though the truth of grace be absolutely necessary to a minister's salvation, yet the want of it does not disannul his office, nor hinder the lawfulness of his ministry. Judas, though a traitor, was yet a lawful minister. The mission of a person may be valid, though he be not sanctified. Observe, lastly, that our Savior named James and John Bonerges, the sons of thunder. St. Jerome thinks this name was given them because being with Christ in the mount at his transfiguration, they heard the Father's voice out of the cloud like thunder. Others think them so called because they were more vehement and earnest than the rest in preaching and did with greater zeal and power send forth the doctrine of the gospel like thunder. It's very probable that Christ gave them this name from a foresight of the heat and zeal of their temper of which they would soon give an instance in desiring fire to come down from heaven to consume the Samaritans.